butter your bagel, down your coffee. From Boston University, it's News Brunch on WTBU Radio and BUNewsService.com. Welcome to this edition of the WTBU News Brunch. I'm Miranda Suarez. And I'm Emma Soslowski. Topping the WTBU News at this hour, President Trump is heading to the Environmental Protection Agency today to sign an order to ease up on restrictions for coal-fueled power plants and greenhouse gas emissions. It could roll back many of President Obama's clean power plan. The rarely used Congressional Review Act will be utilized in President Trump's efforts, only requiring majority in the House, Senate, and the President's signature to pass these orders. President Trump is seeking to overturn the string protection rule, which requires coal mining companies to study water near their mines to ensure the public health of surrounding communities. Trump is also seeking to reduce limits on open methane flaring on public land. I sat down with Boston University professor and global climate change researcher Robert Kaufman about what this means for our planet. So what are the implications of bills like these being overturned? Well, with regard to the latter, the methane flaring, so what will happen is instead of capturing that methane, when you burn it, it'll be converted to carbon dioxide, and so there'll be more carbon dioxide emissions than there otherwise would be. With regard to water, you know, there's all kinds of pollutants and acid mine drainage. Mostly, or a lot of it has to do with uh, sulfur and acidifying local waters. So I guess it's an attempt to like reduce costs for mine owners, but that's really not going to increase coal's share of the market or increase employment for mine workers. And if we don't check the water nearby coal mines, this could be a danger to you know surrounding communities. Yeah, it'll be danger to human health and danger to the environment. There'll be less fish to catch and uh, you can't drink that water. So the people who will be punished are the people who live near those mines and then downstream from that. Why should people be paying attention? But because a lot of people think, oh, this won't affect me, this won't affect my generation, my lifetime. Well, climate change is already affecting us, and if you don't think you're affected by bad water decisions, ask the people of Flint what happened to them. The, the bottom line is the people of Flint still do not have potable water. And so think about what your life would be like if you couldn't drink the water and cook in it and bathe in it. So that's the reality for them and maybe soon for the reality people living near coal mines. And an update on the reality for Flint, Michigan residents. The city of Flint has agreed to replace at least 18,000 water lines, but not until 2020. The grant money is a part of the Environmental Protection Agency's water infrastructure improvements, a measure that will provide $170 million to address water safety across the country. Also coming down the pipeline, oil. Dallas-based Energy Transfer Partners announced that oil has been placed in the Dakota Access Pipeline right under a Missouri River reservoir. Protests by Native American tribes and their allies delayed construction, but developers are now preparing to put the pipeline into service. The $3.8 billion pipeline will be able to move oil from North Dakota 1,200 miles to Illinois. Sanctuary cities are refusing to give up their protections for undocumented immigrants after the Trump administration threatened their federal funding. At a conference of sanctuary city leaders in New York yesterday, officials promised to continue to block cooperation between local police and immigration authorities. The conference followed an announcement by Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who says if these cities want their slice of $4.1 billion in federal aid, they must follow federal immigration laws. Sessions argues sanctuary policies make American citizens unsafe. Countless Americans would be alive today and countless loved ones would not be grieving today 
if these policies of sanctuary cities were ended. Boston is one of the sanctuary cities and remains defiant. The mayor's office insists the city's trust act, the law that bans police from holding immigrants for deportation except in special circumstances, does not break any federal laws. President Donald Trump is stepping up enforcement of immigration laws and three migrant worker activists from Vermont are among those ensnared in the crackdown. They were arrested 10 days ago and appeared in federal court in Boston yesterday. WTBU's Miranda Suarez was there. Supporters of migrant workers outside the John F. Kennedy Federal Building voice their solidarity as they find out a fellow activist has been held without bail. The demonstration outside the JFK building thinned as the cold, rainy day continued, but before the hearing, a crowd of hundreds had gathered in support. Earlier this month, Immigration and Customs Enforcement arrested Alex Carrillo and two others active in a group called Migrant Justice, an organization dedicated to promoting the rights of Vermont's migrant dairy farm workers. After a bond hearing yesterday, a federal judge held Carrillo without bail, based on a DUI that the state of Vermont had dismissed. Brendan O'Neill, an organizer for Migrant Justice, announced the court's decision to a small group of protesters and journalists standing outside the JFK building. Which, to be honest, is about the, the worst result um, one, could, one could expect for, for someone who's a father. The other two activists who were arrested with Carrillo, Enrique Balcázar and Zuli Palacios, had their bail lowered to $2,500, close to the minimum for such cases. The detainee's lawyer, Matt Cameron, argued the three activists were targeted by immigration police for their activism. And there's nothing, absolutely, about Enrique that would set him apart other than his outspoken advocacy for his community. Cameron would not predict the future of the case, but he made it clear this bond hearing is only the first of many in a legal process that could take years. For BU News, I'm Miranda Suarez in Boston. House Intelligence Committee Chair Devin Nunes says he will not step down amid calls that he should recuse himself from the House investigation of possible ties between the Trump campaign and Russia. Nunes met alone last week with a source who allegedly revealed to him that President Trump's team had been caught in an incidental legal surveillance. But Nunes met with this source on White House grounds, raising questions as to who the source was, what was in the documents, and why Nunes was not able to share them with other members of the investigating committee. Nunes says he used White House as location to meet with his source. Sean Spicer said officials had no knowledge that Nunes was on the grounds. Democrats, including Chuck Schumer, questioned what Nunes was doing at, White House, at the White House and whether he met with members of the Trump administration. Republicans also have questions about Nunes's conduct, including Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina. He's gone off on a LARP by himself, sort of an Inspector Clouseau investigation here, trying to find some uh, unmasking information about collection incidental uh, with the Trump campaign and some foreign agent outside of Russia. I think the only way this thing can be repaired if he tells the, his colleagues on the House Intel Committee who he met with and what he saw and let them look at the same information. Professor Robert Loftus, a professor of international relations at the Boston University Party School, says Nunes is making a mistake and not stepping down. It, the things that he did, that he's done actually really call into question his his independence, uh, his ability to actually run an, an investigation and to see where it goes. Uh, the fact that he had this meeting on the White House grounds with a non-White House source. It, it, it opens itself up to some rather unfavorable conclusions uh, about his impartiality. President Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, is volunteering to testify over his meetings with representatives from the Russian bank VEB. 
VEB is a Russian national bank used primarily for government infrastructure projects and is under sanctions from the United States government. Kushner met Sergei Gorkov, the head of VEB, at the urging of the Russian ambassador in December of last year, according to a senior administration official who spoke to the Associated Press. Gorkov was appointed by Putin and has deep ties to the Russian government. A meeting between Kushner and Gorkov does not violate the U.S. sanctions, but it is the latest in a series of revelations about contacts between Trump aides and Russian officials. William Keeler, professor of international relations at Boston University, says the nature of the bank makes any interaction suspicious. If he was uh, in touch with representatives of that bank or any other Russian bank, really, there is the suspicion that it was uh, uh, related in some way to the Russian government. White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer says Kushner did nothing wrong and the meeting was just part of his job. He met with countless individuals. Um, That was part of his job. That was part of his role. Um, And he executed it completely as he was supposed to. Virginia Senator Mark Warner is the top Democrat on the Senate Intelligence Committee, which will be questioning Kushner. In an interview with CBS, Warner said there was no decision yet on whether the hearing would be public or private, but said if there is something there, they will follow the intelligence wherever it leads. A spokesman for Russian President Vladimir Putin is calling the anti-corruption protests that drew tens of thousands of Russians into the streets across the country this weekend a, quote, provocation and lie. The Kremlin accused the professors of being paid. Despite Putin approval rating allegedly never dipping below 80 percent, the protests took place in Moscow and over 100 Russians in one over, excuse me, 100, 100 Russian cities and towns. The demonstration appears to be the largest in Russia since anti-government protests in 2011 and 2012. Professor William Kaler, an international relations professor at Boston University's Party School, said these protests, though, are different than the ones a few years back. The thing that marks this protest from the earlier one is there are a lot of very young people participating in it, whereas before it was more kind of uh, middle-aged people who were involved in it. Now it's really, if you will, the next generation. Kaler says that Putin has no one to blame, hence the government's reaction to call the protests a farce. In the earlier protests, uh, uh, Putin was able to blame the United States for that, and in particular (laughs) uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, but now uh, he can't do that. Around 1,000 people were detained at the protests. One was Alexei Navalny, an anti-corruption activist opposed to the Kremlin's rule, who will be imprisoned for 15 days. Navalny has said he will run against Putin in next year's presidential election. A new report from Amnesty International finds that a surge in civilian casualties in Mosul, Iraq, indicates that a U.S.-led coalition is not taking adequate precautions to prevent civilian deaths. The report focuses on an attack earlier this month that residents say is responsible for over 150 civilian deaths when a building collapsed after U.S. airstrikes. Army Chief of Staff General Mark Milley says it's too early to say if the coalition attack was the cause of the deaths. There were coalition airstrikes in the vicinity uh, of that day and previous days, but we don't know with certainty whether a coalition strike caused the civilian casualties or not. Millie says an investigation is underway, but it is possible that the building was actually blown up by Islamic State forces to delay their offensive. United Nations estimates about 400,000 people remain trapped in ISIS-held neighborhoods in western Mosul. Humanitarian leader for the UN in Iraq, Lise Grande, says the fighting is making things increasingly dangerous for civilians in the city. 
They're at risk from explosive hazards. They're at risk from being caught in crossfire from mortars. We know that families that have been trying to escape the city are often targeted by ISIL. They're shot directly as they're trying to leave. Families who stay are also at risk. The UN Human Rights Office says over 300 civilians have been killed since mid-February this year. We'll be right back. And we're back. With us now is WTBU health correspondent Chris Atienza with today's health news. Chris? Thanks, Emma. The opioid epidemic is growing, but the battle to end the crisis is far from over. Not only is there financial support from the government, but members from the private sector are also trying to do their part as well. WTBU reporter Charles Borsos is at the Taj Hotel for the Rise Massachusetts event. Charles, could you tell me what the event is about? Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, So Rise Massachusetts is trying to bring together a lot of different elements. Um, we had Governor Baker and Marty Walsh and uh, Mara Healy all here today, um, along with some corporate and even um, union representatives, to try to nip in the bud the opioid epidemic uh, in the state. Um, so, uh, you know, a big part of it is producing a nonprofit that can sort of put funds into some different programs that might be left in the cracks in the current uh, healthcare system. So there's a lot of money trying to be raised here. So where do they plan to put this money? So they want to get about, you know, $50 million, and um, they're going to have a call for proposals in a little bit. So it's not 100% clear. You know, I can't give you a line item budget for this, but... Um, you know, they're trying to do some more community-based, uh, you know, efforts, you know, getting some, uh, like, counseling before and after treatment and trying to have a more, uh, you know, a full-fledged system of tackling uh, this, this problem in the state. Now, to try to raise this money, they're probably going to need some big names. So who are some of these big names here at today's event? Well, so there are sort of the, the usual uh, medical people who are back in this. So we have uh, representatives from Partners Healthcare and sort of Mass General who are, are putting support behind this. But we also have 1199 SEIU uh, and General Electric who's coming into the, into the city and building their headquarters here, you know, maybe trying to make some waves by, you know, pushing for this initiative. Uh, now I hear Governor Baker was there. Could you tell me what happened with that? Sure. Uh, Governor Baker, you know, along with a lot of other sort of big wigs in, in Massachusetts were here. And a lot of what they were talking about and something that they all touched on was getting past, you know, sure, we need more funding for these programs. But a big part of RISE was uh, the stigma of having an addiction. And so you know, when you, you diagnose someone with this as a disease, it's trying to make it more socially acceptable um, through this program. Dealing with this is, you know, if my kid had cancer, I'd be telling the neighbors about it and they'd be showing up with casseroles. But because my kid 
as an addiction, which is in many cases has a mortality rate that's as high as many forms of cancer, I don't feel like I can talk to my friends and my friends probably don't want to talk to me. All right. Thank you so much, Charlie. Hey, thanks for having me. Now, according to the National Institute on Drug Abuse, the rate of relapse for someone addicted to opioids can be compared to the rate of those suffering from diabetes, hypertension, and asthma. With the dangers of the growing opioid epidemic in Massachusetts, I went to the Massachusetts Organization for Addiction Recovery's annual public policy forum to hear what Boston plans to do for those suffering with addiction. In 2016, the Massachusetts Department of Public Health reports that there were almost 1,500 confirmed opioid-related deaths. State Representative Elizabeth Malia of the Suffolk District says that the attitude and understanding of how we can help people struggling with addiction is changing on a social as well as a political level. Across the state and in all layers of government and in all layers of society, we're starting to really understand the fact that it's not just enough to do the intervention and the prevention. We've got to do the recovery part. We have to be able to commit ourselves to that. The Massachusetts Organization for Addiction Recovery joined with the Boston Public Health Commission and the Mayor's Office of Recovery Services for a discussion on what could be done in the future to help Boston battle the growing opioid epidemic. Programs, such as the five recovery high schools in Massachusetts, allow young people to learn how to live with and recover from their addictions. Like high school student Aaron, who has been one year sober from alcoholism. It keeps me accountable. It keeps me able to move forward and yet trust myself for once. And I'm able to graduate school for once, something I never thought I was going to be able to do. State Senator John Keenan from the Norfolk and Plymouth District explained that while there are bills like the Good Samaritan Bill that are already trying to be passed, things must be done so that people with criminal records don't risk arrest if they were to report an overdose. We don't think probation, parole, or pre-trial release should mean that somebody's afraid to call to save a life. Saving a life takes precedence over somebody being surrendered on a warrant or a, a, you know, a probation or whatever it may be. Keenan is also concerned about the attempt in the failed repeal of the Affordable Care Act that would have denied addicts treatment. What we have to do is remain committed to making sure that never again are human lives put on the table as a negotiating tool. That they're never put on the table to be moved like chess pieces to get to some piece of legislation that nobody's really happy with. To prevent relapse, a growing number of medical professionals are fighting fire with fire treating heroin addiction with marijuana. High Sobriety, a rehab clinic featured in a New York Times story yesterday, encourages heroin addicts to continue getting high during their stay. Pot is part of the treatment. Studies about the effectiveness of marijuana for treating heroin addiction are scarce. Although some states allow medical and recreational marijuana use, it is still illegal on the federal level. Now, some people like to say that parenthood is one of the biggest stressors in their lives, but according to a new study from Sweden's Karolinska Institute, parenthood could actually be the secret to living longer. The researchers believe that these results might not apply to every country, but there are significant benefits to having older children take care of you while you grow older. As a father of four, Boston University professor Richard Lair does think that this study has some truth. I can't prove that, but I feel like I'm living it. It keeps me alive and on my toes. I mean, my oldest one is becoming a teenager, and, you know, there's stuff every day. Whereas if I didn't have them, um, I'd be an empty nester. And uh, I just, you know, I can't imagine that, but it would be really different. 
March is Endometriosis Awareness Month, and last Saturday, advocates held a march in Boston to raise awareness for the disease. But WDPU reporter uh, commentator Aaron Wade says you wouldn't know that if you're not already in the endometriosis community. If you're asking yourself, what the heck is endometriosis, you're not alone. There's even a documentary that came out a year ago called Endo What? that plays on the obscurity of the disease. But the reality is that the medical community estimates one in 10 women suffers, and I mean suffers, from the reproductive disease. It's often excruciatingly painful, and it's one of the leading causes of infertility in women in this country. You have endometriosis if tissue like the tissue that lines the uterus is found in other parts of your body. There are a bunch of theories about why this happens, but no one actually knows the cause, and there's no cure. Troublingly, not a whole lot of people even know about the disease. Picture 10 women you know, just 10. Statistically, one of those women has endometriosis and at least some of its many, many symptoms. So why haven't you heard of it? For a community that claims Women's History Month as its Awareness Month, you'd think endometriosis sufferers and advocates would do a better job of spreading the word. But they don't. There's nothing particularly attractive about a disease that causes crippling pain with your period, a subject that's pretty taboo in American society. I know it because I live it. But at a certain point, you can't claim that a lack of awareness of a disease affecting 10% of all women in the United States is only the fault of sexism or the taboo surrounding periods. Endometriosis sufferers and advocates must do better. Find people who do marketing and advertising and design an actual awareness campaign. Do an ice bucket challenge. Run a Save the Tatas ad campaign. I know some people have problems with the way these particular strategies have been executed, but they work. Virtually everyone has donated some money to breast cancer research, either directly or indirectly, through the purchase of products with those little pink ribbon logos on them. The Ice Bucket Challenge raised millions and millions of dollars for ALS research, leading to the discovery of a new gene that contributes to the disease, only two years after the challenge went viral. It's possible to get people in the mainstream talking about endometriosis and donating their money to research. Maybe if they were, more women who suffer from the disease and haven't been diagnosed yet could at least have some inkling of what they're dealing with. Maybe there would even be a cure by now. And Awareness Month is totally useless if the community that's trying to raise awareness doesn't do enough to reach out to the rest of the world. For BU News, I'm Erin Wade, and that's my opinion. Drinking and driving can be a deadly mix, especially in teenagers. Alcohol factors into about half of the deaths of people under 21 who die in car accidents. But there is good news. According to a study in the Journal of Pediatrics, one way to decrease drunk driving death in teens is a more restrictive policy about drinking and driving, including graduated licensing laws, exercising taxes on alcohol, and restrictions on alcohol advertising. And that should do it for today's Health Beat. I'm Chris Atanza. Back to Emma and Miranda. Thanks, Chris. Ride-sharing apps like Uber, Lyft, and Fasten can help people in Boston get home safely after a few drinks. And there's another ride-sharing app on the market, Safer, spelled S-A-F-R, launches in Boston last week. The company's mission? Keeping women, both passengers and drivers, safe and free of harassment as they get to where they need to go. WTBU reporter Zoe Mitchell is in Boston. Maya Keel takes Uber about five times a week, and the 23-year-old says she has had some uncomfortable experiences with male drivers while taking evening rides home. And I've had some ri- some drivers make some inappropriate comments to me about just like 
delving into more personal details of my life that I don't necessarily feel like I want to share with them. But I feel kind of obligated because I'm in the car with them. A new ride-sharing app, Safer, is geared directly towards people like Kiel. It is a ride-sharing service that touts a network of women drivers driving for women passengers. The ride-sharing industry is made up of mostly men. Only 14% of Uber drivers are women, and women who do drive make 34% less than men. Joanna Humphrey Flynn, Safer's marketing and PR manager, said this is because women drivers are less likely to work peak hours, which is at night and later on the weekends, due to safety concerns. Women are basically being iced out of the rideshare economy right now. And so we really just want to create a space that provides women the opportunity to take advantage of all of the benefits afforded by ride-sharing. Safer's launch is aptly timed, with ride-sharing giant Uber and hot water for sexual harassment allegations and multiple sexual assault accusations against drivers. But men cannot and will not be excluded from driving and taking Safer. We actually don't discriminate. Um, We welcome anybody who wants to come, you know, who believes in the mission of empowering women and believes in the mission of safety and ride-sharing. But the marketing for Safer will be focused towards women. For BU News in Boston, I'm Zoe Mitchell. It's not easy being blue, especially if you're the only female Smurf in Israel. An ultra-Orthodox Jewish community is saying lo, that's Hebrew for no, to posters for the new Smurf movie, The Lost Village, because it features a Smurfette. So the sect doesn't permit public images of females, and the Smurf promo posters have been whitewashed, or I guess bluewashed, to eliminate the female character. And she's not alone. The ultra-Orthodox sect avoided publishing images of Hillary Clinton last year, to which I say, oi, gewalt. But the image of one girl in New York City will remain for longer than expected. The fearless girl statue will remain on Wall Street, staring down the iconic Charging Bull statue until International Women's Day next year. Some advocates want her to stay longer than March of 2018, though. Letitia James, a New York City public advocate, says she hopes the statue becomes a permanent fixture in the financial district. You see, fearless girl must become a permanent fixture in our city as a reminder to all women, young and old, that no dream is too big and no ceiling is too high, and that women, as was mentioned earlier, make good business decisions. Boston-based State Street Corporation installed the statue ahead of this year's International Women's Day, which falls on March 8th each year. We'll be right back after a short break. Welcome back. In soccer, Lionel Messi is banned from the next four games of Argentina's World Cup qualifying games for insulting a match official. The suspension is sure to hurt the Argentinian team as Messi is widely considered among the best players in the world. Argentina's first game without their star will be against Bolivia this afternoon. 
Also in sports news, the Oakland Raiders fans are already similar and familiar with fear and loathing in soon Las Vegas. The NFL owners voted 31 to 1 on Monday to allow the franchise to move the team from Oakland to Vegas. The planned exodus would be the second time the team has left Oakland for greener pastures. For a while, they were in Los Angeles. Raiders fan Ivan Davis says fans won't be quick to forgive the team this time. The ones that's given their lifeblood to you, yeah, you lost them probably forever. The ones that left, didn't want to come back, but came back, okay, you're back. And now you did it again, they're, they're gone probably forever. The Raiders will continue to play in Oakland for at least the upcoming 2017 season and possibly more while a new stadium is built in Las Vegas. Tom Brady wants to play for six or seven more years. That's what Patriots owner Robert Kraft says Brady told him a few days ago. Brady turns 40 in August, so if he wanted six or seven years to retire, he'd, been, he'd be among the oldest quarterbacks in NFL history. And, of course, Brady's made football history before. His Super Bowl win in February made him the only quarterback in NFL history to win five Super Bowls. Kraft says Brady's diet and exercise habits have led to his record-breaking success and long career. Another Boston icon, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, known for its visual art collection, is now featuring a different art form, sound. In a play on words, the exhibit is called Listen Here, with here spelled H-E-A-R. It's a sound exhibit with two additional pieces located in public spaces around Boston. WTBU reporter Aaron Wade listened in. The Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum sometimes houses musical performances, but now through September, you'll hear more than just a traditional concert here. Classical and contemporary art combine audibly through the Listen Here exhibit. It is subtle at times and often interactive. Kathy Sharpless, a spokesperson for the museum, says one of the sound artists took inspiration from the Vermeer painting stolen from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in 1990. The stolen painting is called The Concert, and it shows two women and a man gathered around an open piano, apparently giving a musical performance. The new sound installation bounces music created by a harpsichord, lute, and French vocalist off the mirror in the frame where the painting used to hang to bring the missing painting back to life. You know, his feeling was look, looking at the painting that it wasn't a, a concert, even though that's what the name is. It's more a rehearsal. So... It sort of evokes what must have been going on inside that piece that we no longer can see, at least for now. Other installations throughout the museum include the sounds and portraits of purring cats, deconstructed classical music pieces, and audio elements that breathe new life into the museum's historic galleries. One of the pieces, called Sentient Veil, makes sound when you move. If you wave your hands under the fabric and glass sculpture, it gently lights up and chatters at you. But the museum's curator of contemporary art, Pierana Cavalcini, is also excited about the parts of the exhibit that are found outside the museum's walls. You know, the sounds of the city, I mean, they're like this constant hum. And it's important to be aware of other sounds and how much they affect our lives and our health and our state of mind. Because that way, maybe we can design better cities. The exhibit extends beyond the museum. One installation of sorts is an app-guided audio experience of the Back Bay Fence. Another installation at the Ruggles MBTA station plays the sounds heard outside Haley House Cafe toward Northeastern University and sends the sounds of Northeastern to Haley House. The Ruggles installation opens in April. For BU News, I'm Erin Wade at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. And now an original rap about an exciting attraction making its way to New England. 
How does a hip-hop, musical, snag 11 Tony Awards? I'm floored. I gotta see it soon before the 31st of May in 2018. A-hams come into Boston if you know what I mean. That's right, the entire month of May of next year, you can see it for yourself. So grab a seat, lend your ears. The Boston Opera House, if you've got some extra dollars, catch the cast of Hamilton snacking on lobster rolls and chowder. And that'll do it for this edition of the WTBU News Brunch. I'm Emma Sislowski. And I'm Miranda Suarez. Stay tuned to WTBU. For all your news, sports, and music, we leave you now with more from the hit Broadway show, Hamilton. There's nothing rich folks love more than going downtown and slumming it with the poor. They pull up in their carriages and gawk at the students in the common just to watch them talk. Take Philip Schuyler, the man is loaded. Uh-oh, but little does he know that his daughters Peggy, Angelica, Eliza, still...